is Erin Hesse, Connections Coordinator from High Point Church. And just a few months ago, back in April, we had a conference for our volunteers called Engage and Equip Live. We have the both the first and second day of the content here now, and so we've got the first one already up, and we're going to play the second day content for you. Hope you enjoy it. Abram Rogers had never really cared about people. And that's why people around him said that he was perfect for the collection squad. Every once in a while, somebody would ask him how he could have a job where he tore newborn babies out of the arms of mothers. And he said, if you want the lifestyle you have, and we need the population we've got, you need people like me. The day in question, he was training a young man named Aaron Stern, Eric Stern. Um, Stern had been conscripted to the job under the Population Reduction Act of two of 2094, and this was his first collection. They'd finally tracked down this woman after she'd slipped them a couple of times, and he finally opened the door of this about 30-foot-long apartment that looked like the inside of a tractor trailer. At the end of the room was about a 110-pound woman clutching a newborn baby. He pushed Eric into the room. There was no easy way to do it the first time. He slowly walked across the room. He didn't say a word, and neither did she. Everybody knew what they were there for. And he slowly reached out with both hands and put his hands on the child and went to pull out of her arm. And Abram smirked as he always did when he trained new recruits and he thought, what a rookie. They never think this through. He stood behind his left shoulder and watched for 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, as he struggled to pull this child out of the mother's arms. She's 110 pounds. This, Eric was 6'2", 240. It's just a matter of will. Then after a while, he pushed him out of the way with his right hand and said, you're doing it wrong. With his left arm, he reached down and scooped behind the child and with his right arm, with a muscle from the fingertips to his shoulder they'd been working on for 15 years, he clamped his gloved hand around her throat. And her eyes got big, first out of fear and then out of horror at the decision she had to make, whether to keep both hands on her child or whether to try to free her ability to breathe. A few hours later, around the water cooler at work, Abram said, she did what they always do. She kept both hands on the child, and we left with it. Now, why do I start with that heartwarming story? You always complain that I never tell enough stories. The reason why I tell that story is I think it's at the heart of why so many Christians get burned out and torn up and frustrated and why many people who claim to believe in Jesus, who believe in their hearts they've clung to Jesus with all their heart to hold on to their faith, still ultimately lose their faith and walk away from Jesus because the life got choked out of them while they were trying to grip on to Jesus with all their heart. And they didn't even realize what to do or how to deal with it. And I think one of the ways in which Satan chokes the life out of us is through drawing us into a life that is so profoundly unnatural that we cannot endure it or survive it with any kind of motivation or life. And then to persuade us, Jesus actually called us to it. So that we will grip onto Jesus till the bare end while something we think is our duty chokes the life out of us. So misconception three about 
being the church and fulfilling our vision together is simply this, that I need to fit programmatic disciple-making into my life. Or the quote might be something like this. I need to do more to really be a part of making disciples. More hours at church and more pressures on my time is just the cost of really loving Jesus. He never said it was going to be easy. Right? You could say this uh, as the unnaturalist assumption. Making disciples in ministry needs to be added to my suburban life. You need to figure out how to volunteer 10 to 12 hours of your family life to ministry every week in order to really live out the commission to make disciples. In fact, you must feel the stress of the creation mandate, all of your ordinary life, and the Great Commission conflicting with each other all of your life. You just need to fight through it. Now, The result of that is what I will, I'll just call Bilbo as the average Jesus-loving church member after 5 to 15 years of service in the local church. I know I don't look it, but I'm beginning to feel it in my heart. I feel thin, sort of stretched, like butter scraped over too much bread. I need a holiday. A very long holiday. And I don't expect I shall return. In fact, I mean not to. Right? Hallelujah, brother. It just does not sound very much like this quote from Jesus, right? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and I, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, yeah, he's calling sinners because he's saying, take my yoke on you. But he's also saying that when you do that, there will be a fundamental change in your life. You will leave the soul-choking unnaturalness of the life that is destroying you, and you will enter into a different kind of life, and you'll find that my lordship is absolutely authoritative— and not crushing. Right? Now, the problem is, is that a lot of Christians, and I think especially like suburban Christians, especially educated ones who are in significant careers and have, um, and have demanding vocations, um, that is not how we feel. We want to have a high-achieving church. We want to have a high-achieving life. We want to have high-achieving friendships, a high-achieving marriage with high-achieving kids with a high-achieving retirement. And um, we, in it, embrace so unnatural a lifestyle that we're literally choking ourselves to death spiritually and emotionally. When Jesus said, and Jesus did say it wasn't going to be easy, right? In uh, Luke 9, 23, he says, take up your cross. You know, if you want to follow me, what is it going to take? It means you're going to have to take up your cross every day and follow me. Right? So how do those two things go together? How does, it's gonna, you're gonna have to take up your cross every day and basically die every day to follow Jesus. And my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, part of it is a confusion in what part of this is hard and what part is supposed to be easy. Following Jesus is going to be oppressionally difficult. There are going to be lots of people who disapprove of you, lots of people who dislike you, and in some contexts, lots of people who are going to persecute you. In that sense, following Jesus is going to be like being Jesus. It is going to be oppressionally difficult, right? Becoming like, becoming like him in his death, it says in Philippians 3, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. It's going to be spiritually difficult. 
There's always going to be a fight inside us between the flesh and the spirit. We are always going to be putting the flesh to death and giving ourselves more fully to the spirit of God, learning what it means to live as free men and women, to overcome the degradation of the sinful condition, and to experience and to participate in the divine nature, it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, to escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires, and to grow from goodness to godliness to perseverance to knowledge to self-control to brotherly kindness to love. That is going to be difficult. Spiritual growth is difficult, right? It's going to be morally difficult. Making the moral choices day in and day out, doing what's actually right, good, true, and beautiful under the command and truthful self-revelation of God is going to be hard. Every time. But it doesn't mean unnaturally difficult. It doesn't mean that as a duck, you're supposed—have you heard the duck-rabbit story? As a duck, you're—right? The duck's really good at swimming, the rabbit's really good at running. And so they're like, well, you need to get really good at swimming, you really need to get really good at running. So they make the duck go to track practice, and they put the rabbit in the pool until they're both miserable, right? Um, it's a business story about, you know, focusing on what you're good at rather than what you're not good at. But it's also a story about making people miserable being what they're not. And we spend so much time in our culture completely misunderstanding what it means to be yourself. Be yourself does not mean the subjectivity of your individuality. Being yourself means um, submitting to the fact that you are a human being who exists in a particular kind of finitude. That's what being yourself means to a Christian. It means you are a human just like everybody else, and being a human has certain limitations, certain blocks around it, certain dictates of finitude, and brokenness, and redemption. And you have to understand what you are and then decide what you're going to do so that what you do is actually natural in the supernatural sense of of perfected, grace-perfecting nature, as the Roman Catholics would say. So that we are not, we do not believe spirituality rules out the realities of nature. Otherwise, accepting Jesus would mean we could fly. And it doesn't yet. Right? And so one of the things that I think we need to realize if we're going to be a church that's really thriving is we can never step back from telling people following Jesus is going to be oppressionally difficult. You can never step back from telling people that following Jesus is going to be spiritually difficult. You can never tell people that following Jesus isn't going to be morally difficult. But when we see people ducking oppression, avoiding spiritual difficulty and spiritual disciplines, making terrible moral decisions, and then yet claiming to follow Jesus in a way that is unnaturally killing them, we need to recognize that we have imagined something really wrong. And there's an awful lot of that in American evangelical suburban high-achieving churches. And we're killing ourselves. And we're not becoming disciples, and we're not going to make disciples that way. You may get sick of this passage of the book of Ecclesiastes over the next year, because I really believe that we have to put the book of Ecclesiastes together with the New Testament gospel and see them as one thing. And Ecclesiastes absolutely affirms the natural order of things. Not the sinful nature order of things, but the natural creational order of things, which has not been taken away in Christ's redemption, but has been perfected and rehabilitated in Christ's redemption. And so he says, listen— Part of receiving salvation is the ability to accept a normal life with all of its toil and all its repetitions and to be happy about it, 
to feel fulfillment in it. To not see it as something that's keeping you from the pursuits that you wish to have that would give you a real opportunity at happiness, but instead that we live literally in the present moment. C.S. Lewis said in the Screwtape Letters, he said, um, devils will always tempt people to live in the future. Only some scholars and old women can be persuaded to live in the past. And so we will tell people that to live in the future is to follow what it's like to follow God because God, that's what God is most like. He has all the opportunities. And he said, that's totally false. The, the present is the most like God. God lives in the eternal present. He is always where he is, fully engaged at the moment he's engaged in. He's not worrying about the future, thinking it'll be better than it might be or worse than it might be or fearing 15 possible future bad things, none of which all could happen. Right? Your spouse can't both leave you and die of cancer with you. Right? And he said, that's, that is, that's not what a Christian does. A Christian looks forward just enough to the future in order to plan to do their duty, and then they live fully in the natural, ordinary, and repetitive present. That's so hard for us. We've invented whole technological devices so we can put stuff in our ears so we don't have to be fully present for doing the laundry or for our drive to work or for anything. One of the things I think we have to recapture in, as a society of substance is that the whole concept of chasing dreams has become in some ways a ridiculous idolatry. And I want to contrast it just for a second with the way people used to think about um, big-time things. Um, you can see this in Lord of the Rings. You can also see this in the life of George Washington or mo- a lot of the great people of the past that none of them wanted to have to live in prominence. What they wanted is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. He says, um, prayer and, and do prayers and intercession thanksgiving for everyone so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. His assumption was is that virtually everybody in the church should want to live a quiet and godly life in all holiness, outside of prominence, being able to give themselves to the normal repetitions of ordinary life. Because the things of ordinary life are actually the best things in life. Love, friendship, mutual enjoyment, long-term companionship, shared understanding, worship of God, All of those things can be had by the poorest possible person with no resources. They're a commitment of the will to each other. They're part of the most basic fabric without almost any other resources at all. You can have that with five cavemen and women. And that is actually the best part of the grace of God in all of natural life. Yet we have come to believe that somehow the affectation of prominence is what makes our life worthwhile Precisely because it is unlike the masses. It has a built-in need of fundamental superiority. But the, the, the dream is embracing the ordinary, having the ordinary. Ecclesiastes says, listen, there's a time for everything under, under the sun. It all just kind of rolls together. It all... It all just sort of proceeds, and it's all ordinary, whether it's becoming a king or being deposed, whether it's living or dying, birth and death, eating, drink, everything, sleeping, 
building a wall, tearing a wall down. It's all just the cycle of the ordinary natural. There isn't more than that. God has made the world to be that way and therefore has democratically given everyone the same possibility of joy. If you had to be a rock star to be really happy or to be important, then only a very small percentage of human society could achieve what God really wanted for human beings. But that's just not the case. Every single human person has access to what they need to live fulfilled and beautifully as a human being. The culture of substance is that accomplishment may lead to prominence. So it's psychologically and spiritually healthy people wish that they could live quiet and ordinary lives, but will accept being thrust into abnormal prominence because it's their duty. George Washington is a a classic example of this. All George Washington wanted to do is to go home to Mount Vernon for 40 years. It's all he wanted. He didn't want to lead the Continental Army. He did not want to fight. He didn't want to see people die in front of him. He didn't want to be at Valley Forge and watch people starve for a whole winter. He didn't want any of that. He just wanted to go home and see Martha, who was like 16 inches shorter than him, and grow some crops and look out over the field and ride his horse and come home to his wife and children. That's all he wanted. And part of the story is just he was continually called to prominence, right? Tolkien talks about this in, in The Hobbit and in The Lord of the Rings, where Frodo was like, I, don't, I didn't want the ring. I don't want to do this. Why? I don't want to be in Moria. I don't, and, and Gandalf just says, look, we don't pick the times that we're called to. We are conscripted to them. And part of Tolkien's story is that there's this place called the Shire, which is the beauty of the ordinary, It's where all these little hobbits grow things and they grow pigs and they drink beer and they make jokes and they fart and they just have children and they get married and they play in the water and they enjoy each other and they enjoy the verdant beauty of life around them and in shalom and peace and justice together with each other. And, but then when something terrible happens, someone is called out of that into terrible prominence to bear a burden that no one should have to bear, and he bears it vicariously on behalf of those he seeks to save, so that when it was in Moria, the only thing that carries him along is his hope that in somewhere in his mind's eye he could see the grass of the Shire, because that's what he loves, not the quest. And you see, when, when people have a deep sense of the nature of things and how Grace perfects nature. It is all of the normal things in life we see with utmost beauty that we don't want to leave. We want to be married. We want to go home to the same woman every night. We want to sit and talk with the same children as they strangely grow. We want to mow the same lawn even, crazy as that sounds. We want to go to the same work and work with the same colleagues and do some of the same work over and over again as long as it really makes a contribution to the life of others. And only in terrible need. If we have accomplished much and we're the person people would turn to in a time of need, may we have to be called into some kind of terrible prominence through some kind of divine providence. But that is not the world of celebrity that we live in. 
where people believe that prominence is itself an accomplishment and in some ways the only accomplishment worthwhile. It is an unnatural drive. And in order to experience it, we have to experience things that can't be experienced by everybody, cannot be sustained, often are not wholesome, are by definition novel or extraordinary. That is, etymologically, literally, in order for it to be good, it has to be not ordinary. That is, friends, that is a poison that we need to suck out of the wounds of our children and each other until we can restore an understanding of what it means to be a natural human being, perfected and saved by the grace of God, living in a supernaturally ordinary way. And it is only then, I believe, I I believe this very strongly, it is only then that the latent kind of burning anxiety, anger, frustration, boredom, desperateness that people feel that they know they shouldn't feel in Christ, but they do feel, will really begin to dissipate the way it's supposed to. And the peace of Christ can actually enter in. And the insecurities that are spinning around all those frustrations can begin to lay aside. We can begin to actually experience who we are in Christ himself, crucified and risen. We can embrace a real life in the present with love. And we cannot have the edge of anxiety that whatever it is we're doing is keeping us from what we would like to pursue so that we might have a chance at being happy through something extraordinary. Because that's all extraordinary really means when you break it down. Now, that may not sound very ambitious to you. Um, but what that means is I, I really believe we need to enter sort of a new era as suburban American Christians where we really learn how to embrace the rhythms of the ordinary so that we become as extraordinary as we can possibly become in Jesus while embracing the natural, ordinary life that God has called us to as humans that experience depravity, finitude, and regeneration and spiritual empowerment. And it is, it is the proper union of both of those things that I think will produce the most potent spiritual church, the most fulfilling Christian life, and the most um, plausible life gospel preaching to the city watching us. Okay, so let me go just through a couple of these things quickly. One is, therefore, whatever you do to make disciples cannot be added on to your life. You just, you can't, you can't structure your life on the basis of secular modernity and then add on a bunch of disciple making. It doesn't work. And um, what happens when you try to do that is you do something that's impossible. And whenever you, you do something that, try to do something that's impossible, whether you feel like somebody else is making you do it or whether you feel like God is making you do it, what that leads to is guilt, anger, and then rejection. First you feel like you can't do it and you just feel guilty. And then you realize it can't be done, and you're being asked to do something that can't be done, so you get angry. And then, when you get tired of being angry, you start believing whoever asked you to do this is just wicked, and you reject them. Or in the case of God, maybe not there, because a good God who is there wouldn't ask me to do this. And what it produces is, what we have to recognize is that right now we live in the presence of two very unnatural lives. One is the secular gratification life of the worldly competition culture. This is the the present suburban American life we live in. We'll talk about more of this in the fall when we get to the Substance series. That is already a fundamentally unnatural life. 
And then we take a somewhat unnatural spirituality in that it's over, over-programmatic and not part of our ordinary life, a lot of it. And then we cram that in, and what you end up with is like a life that's like a clown car. And so somebody's, somebody's knee is up your nose, and it does not work. The second thing is, it, it can just be freeing to recognize that ordinary is actually the best context of making disciples. The, the, the gathered church in the church building as the local church is a great tool that is part of how as a community we make disciples together. But actually, one of the, the best place to disciple people for the ordinary is in the ordinary. There's nowhere better than disciple someone than them watching your kids game together or going and helping them fold laundry or in being with them while they're doing something that's part of their normal and ordinary life. There is nothing like ordinary, the ordinary for discipling someone if you are discipling them for the ordinary, which is what you should be discipling them for. Even participation in things we think are extraordinary. Like, you're like, well, wait a second, Nick, what about like, accomplishing social justice and reaching the nations and these like, big things? Somebody's going to have to think extraordinarily. Yes, but all extraordinary things get accomplished by a group of people with a shared conviction coming together and doing a bunch of ordinary tasks over and over again in order to accomplish it. Even the extraordinary achievements are, are achieved by great repetitiveness in the ordinary. The third thing is, we have to have the right attitude and feelings about our ordinary lives. I think one of the greatest holes in our sanctification is the simple task of learning to delight in the ordinary, the repetitive, and the present. The person right in front of you is all that matters right now. This task, my my role and responsibility brings me right here to bedtime with this little kid, or to bath time, or to studying this textbook or to prepare this report, or to move these boxes from here to there. And if that's what I'm called to do, if my roles and my responsibilities dictate that this is what I'm supposed to be doing right now, this is what I should embrace and do with all my heart as to the Lord. And if it's not, I should go do something else. But I shouldn't do this like a tortured little flower. Think about people that you've tried to minister to and disciple, or think about your own life. Where have the greatest hurts come from? Right? When you talk to people, and you talk about the greatest hurts of their lives, do you know where they come from? Almost always, somebody not fulfilling their ordinary responsibility. My dad left our family. My mom treated me this way. My parents never listened when I talked to them. I mean, you just go through these things. My marriage fell apart. My and, well, how did your marriage fall apart? Well, for, t- for 20 years, we just didn't do the little important things. It just, she didn't want to be a wife. I didn't want to be a... It almost always, like, you can, you can paint some big picture, but almost always what it comes down to that is the most devastating things for people who are hurt is somebody didn't do the ordinary. Somebody didn't grow in godliness. Somebody didn't embrace their roles. Somebody didn't have the conversation before it came and became a relational iceberg. Somebody didn't just show up when they needed to show up. Base, super basic things that people just didn't do for years. They just, they failed. They didn't fail in the extraordinary. They failed in the ordinary. Our lives come apart. We destroy other people in the ordinary, in these little moments, in small things, in our real roles and responsibilities, in the ordinary present, in all its repetitions. 
Don't you see? It is a smokescreen. It is a, it is a fake to think that we didn't make the big call. Yes, sometimes it comes down to big gut checks, but the reason we didn't make the gut checks when we don't is because we missed all the little gut checks of discipleship that would have made us the kind of person that would have made that gut check. It almost always, almost always comes down to the ordinary. And until you and I embrace every second of where we're supposed to be and the significance of every ordinary moment, supernaturally perfected by the grace of God's regenerative and Holy Spirit-driven power, we cannot be unanxious, personally secure, God-glorifying, gospel-driven, supernatural, non-typical disciples. I'll be done in just a minute here. Fourth is... Um, we probably need to restructure our ordinary life. If we've made a, cl- a clown car out of our life, and if we've taken in a kind of secular gratification competition culture and a programized church culture, and we've, st- we've stuck it all together, it's, it's, po- it's, it's not possible. It's almost certain we have created a perfectly unworkable life for ourselves. And even if we volunteer less at church, it's not going to fix it. Modern secularity is full of all kinds of ridiculous ideas about work, super idiotic parenting models, producing stuff in our kids that we say we don't even care about and neglecting things we say we do, right? How, how many families are spending more time every week driving their kids around to activities than spending time as a family? What are we producing? We're producing really good soccer players that don't know how to be part of a family. Is that what we say we want? Right? We watch a hundred times more television than we read the Bible with and teach theology to our kids. What are we producing? We're producing people who are really good at taking in television and people who don't know much about the gospel or the Bible or the truth of what we say that we believe. Right? These are very basic, simple decisions. And, and listen, we didn't, we didn't decide this. It's not like we had a church meeting, like a congregational meeting. We're like, all right, you know, uh, Boyd motioned that we all put our kids in 19 sports. Um, we have a second, second. Let's vote. Oh, it looks like everybody's for this. We didn't do that. What happened was, is that when I was a kid, you played one sport at a time. And when you played three sports, you tend to get better than the kid that played one sport. And then all this money got dumped into college athletics and the price of college went way up. And lots of parents got idiotic dreams about their kids playing college sports and not having to pay for college. And there's also a lot of prominence and I didn't quite make it. And then we, we created an arms race. This is what competition does, right? We created this little arms race. And now we all, we don't want our kid to be less nurtured than the other kid, right? And so we create this kind of arms race, which is actually a incredibly idolatrous rejection of the idea of Sabbath. Right? The whole idea of Sabbath is the pagans are going to work seven days a week and you're going to work six and you're going to be ahead because you're going to trust God. And God is able to make the six-day work of your hands sufficient so that your fear of letting the seventh day go and resting and worshiping instead, you will see that I am there to bless you and I have chosen a natural life for you, not an unnatural choking one. And we can't do it for ourselves in our careers, and we absolutely cannot do it in the nurturing of our children. One of the things that we're going to have to do is we're going to have to stop and entirely reverse engineer our lives again, and we're going to have to look at our neighbors and say, my kid isn't doing that. 
the, the horror and shock when we told parents we were not putting Rachel in elite soccer. We weren't going to pay the $1,500. We weren't going to travel every weekend. We weren't going to drive to Oregon three nights a week so that she could practice indoors all winter long. The, it, was, it was incalculable in people's minds. You could tell it was like they, their software could not compute the idea that we would tell our child she wasn't going to play competitive soccer. You know what happened? Alexa and I had a couple of really good conversations with her. She realized it was the right decision, and she played volleyball here at High Point the next season and likes it better. And she's learning how to be part of our family. Instead of not only not being there for our family, but taking me and Alexi out of our family to cart her all over God's creation all the time. But listen, I'm not, I don't pick on sports. There's lots of other things we could pick on of leisures and houses, whatever. I don't, I don't care. There's lots of stuff. Men and their hobbies, leaving their families, right? That hurts me a little bit. Um, the point is that we didn't, we didn't say, hey, let's come up with a really ungodly lifestyle. And it's, and, and it's also, we didn't, say, we didn't say, hey, let's think of lots of ways to sin in our lifestyle, right? I mean, it's not like we filled our life with, like, you know, hookers and drugs. We filled our lives with things that are essentially neither moral or immoral, but that affect our lives by creating a structure for it. And those structures inevitably produce things that don't produce discipleship. And until we have the bravery to go back and open, lift up the hood of our life and restructure that whole engine to fit becoming Christ's disciple, we are never going to live a natural, supernaturally ordinary lifestyle in which we're naturally making disciples in ordinary life and its repetitions in the most extraordinary way we've ever seen, with a real vitality of life in us, with a real peace inside of us, where we enjoy things that we may have thought we'd never enjoy, and do those repetitions together with others to make them even more fun, because the greatest things in life are the most simple things, like friendship and love and so on. Now, super, super quick, just the last question. So wait, wait a second. So where is the church in this then? Like, if you're like, we need to live these ordinary lives and embrace the law, and we can't have this huge programmatic church cramming into everything else, and blah, blah, blah. I mean, are, are you basically saying that we're going to have Sunday morning services and that it? That's it? I mean, like, are we even going to do that anymore? What are we doing? Right? And here's, here's my quick response to that. One, we should, we have to get life right first before we decide how we structure the church for it. There's certain things that church always is going to do. It's going to always going to worship. It's always going to gather and love each other. It's always going to administer the ordinances. It's always going to engage in church discipline. It's always going to preach the gospel. But in addition to that, Jesus didn't tell us what we had to do. Oh, and, and we, we, have to, we have to make sure that our own poor do not suffer in destitution. Those six things. Now, in addition to that, it doesn't say what we have to do. It depends on what ordinary life looks like in our context. And so if we're in the south side of Chicago, or if we're in Fisha Kaputnam, or if we're in sub-Saharan Africa, or if we're here, that's going to look different. That's part of what it means to decide on what to do ministry-wise. But it can only work after we get a proper vision of what it looks like to embrace real life as supernaturally ordinary disciples.
We have to stop humiliating people that their work doesn't matter, but only their time at church matters. You can't fully embrace Jesus until you embrace the laundry. You just can't. You just can't. And it's only when we get that vision right together can we then get together and say, what ministries should we have? Such that they don't turn every devout serving believer into a version of Bilbo Baggins. And so we don't go out into the world and make disciples so that they can be twice the choked suburban, modern, secular Christian who is anxious, angry, frustrated, and losing our own faith over time so that we can bring in these disciples and make them just like us. And all it takes is to take what God says in Ecclesiastes and what he says in Philippians and just believe him enough to put them together. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, what I've said this morning will be freeing to your people, that it would not take away an ounce of their ambition to live beautifully in, in a glorious way for you or to lead hundreds and thousands of people to Jesus. But I do pray that it would be freeing and peace-giving and life-giving to recognize that you did not call us to take on a yoke you didn't put on our shoulders. You did not call us to make the yoke of Jesus heavy and to make his burden unbearably heavy. You have said that when it comes to recognizing who we are as people— so if we come to you, your burden, your yoke is easy. It fits us exactly in the finitude you created us with and that your burden is not that heavy. And though we will struggle under the pain of persecution and under the pain of the spiritual difficulty and under the pain of moral choice, help us to be free of struggling under the falsely adopted pain of living in a way that is totally unnatural. Help us embrace every part of the ordinary, every moment of the present with all its repetitions, and to live in that moment for your glory. And then help us decide how to do ministry out of that realization. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.